Today's podcast is a joint episode of Tash Amplified and Yes to Employment. It is part of a series of podcasts, blog posts, and social media that Tash and the Yes Center are producing in recognition of National Disability Employment Awareness Month, or NDEAM. To see what else we are doing, search for the NDEAM or NDEAM75 hashtags on social media. Today, Tash's Interim Executive Director, Serena Lowe, talks with Allison Barkoff, who is, among many other things, the Director of Advocacy at the Center for Public Representation. They have a wide-ranging discussion of employment policy and programs for people with disabilities, but Allison remains rooted throughout in her experience as a sibling to her brother with disabilities, Evan. to have a great friend of mine, Allison Barkoff, uh, on today's podcast in honor of the National Disability Employment Awareness Month, sponsored by U.S. Department of Labor. Um, and uh, we're just so excited to have Allison. Uh, for those that don't know Allison, she's currently the Director of Advocacy at the Center for Public Representation here in Washington, D.C., uh, and works on a myriad of policy and litigation issues related to community integration and inclusion, including Olmstead, Medicaid issues, employment, housing, and education. Um, but she has a vast and very long uh, uh, record of being a tremendous advocate of individuals with differing abilities um, here in Washington and throughout the country. Um, just a couple of other things about Allison. Uh, she was appointed to serve on the Federal Advisory Committee for Competitive Integrated Employment of People with Disabilities um, and also is a co-chair currently of the Long-Term Services and Supports Task Force of the Consortium of Citizens with Disabilities. Uh, she has testified before Congress and the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights regarding uh, uh, individuals with disabilities in employment. Um, and from 2010 to 2014, served as special counsel for, for Olmstead Enforcement in the Civil Rights Division of the Department of Justice, uh, where she led a, a number of efforts to enforce the right of individuals with disabilities to live, work, and receive services in the community. Um, I've known uh, Allison for a number of years, have had the great pleasure of basically walking in her in her shadow and really trying to hold on to uh, her coattails as she has uh, really, I think, uh, elevated the national conversation here in Washington about federal uh, civil rights and policies that are really intended to um, create a pathway for individuals with significant disabilities to uh, be a part of the generic workforce and economic mainstream. Uh, we've had an opportunity to work in the federal government together. Uh, Allison worked both uh, beyond just the Department of Justice, has also spent some time at the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, and also with the Department of Labor. So I just want to um, thank Allison for um, coming uh, on the podcast today with me and, uh, and say welcome. Thanks so much, Serena, for having me. I'm excited to have a conversation with you today. 
Likewise, likewise. Well, um, I, I saved a little bit of, of your bio uh, for you to tell us a little bit about um, about your background in terms of how you got into this work um, and into the field of, of disabilities, civil rights, and your personal perspective and, and connection. Sure. Well, I've had the fortune of calling myself a member of the disability community for almost 40 years. And 40 years ago, when my brother was born, the world was a completely different place. People with intellectual and developmental disabilities like Evan were told, um, there's no place for you in society. Everyone like Evan, for the most part, was put in institutions and families were told the best thing for them and for their typical um, uh, children would be to put uh, their their child with a disability way. I was really lucky that my parents said no, and they really wanted the same thing for Evan as they wanted for us. And they were really on the forefront of, you know, having a vision that did not exist at the time, thinking about what inclusion looks like in every aspect of life. Now, Evan was the first generation of kids who had a right, a civil right to attend school. It's kind of hard for me to imagine thinking back in someone's life who isn't really that old that kids with disabilities were not even allowed into schools a generation ago. And there was no such thing as community-based services. There was no such thing as employment for people with disabilities. And my parents really, um, every single thing and every expectation and aspiration they had for me and my sisters, they had for Evan. And I think most importantly, the thing that I've learned from my family, and most importantly from Evan, is how important self-determination is, how important self-advocacy is. And um, I've had the pleasure of being part of policy change over the last 40 years with a guiding light of People with disabilities want lives that look like people without disabilities. They want a job, they want friends, they wanna be a valued member of their community, they wanna make choices for themselves, they wanna try things and have a right to fail. Um, and so that's really been my approach to disability advocacy. Wow, what a great story about Evan and his journey and um, the power of uh, family and and uh, personal supports to that we all need right along our our path and our journey in life. Um, I, that's great. I you know I I'm going to switch it up here a little bit based on um, uh, kind of that background because uh, I know in your work you've had an opportunity to collaborate um, at a state level with a lot of local communities with many state protection and advocacy entities with uh, councils of uh, individuals with dis developmental disabilities. Um, and, and you've worked with these groups to really help state governments uh, uh, think about how they're investing uh, in individuals and in services and making sure that they are strategically focusing resources toward creating competitive integrated employment options for individuals with significant disabilities. In your mind and, and based on the experiences you have, what, what do you think are the top two or three barriers that continue to stifle or impede 
individuals with significant disabilities from seeking and obtaining employment in their communities? So I think there are a couple barriers that um, that remain. You know, I think one important thing, and so much of my work is not only to kind of do the inside DC policy work, working with Congress and working with federal agencies, but where the rubber really hits the road is at disability service systems. So I think one big barrier that that I see is, you know, we have this um, kind of this general agreement and and federal laws that really are about prioritizing competitive integrated employment. And we have at a state level, a lot of, you know, philosophy around employment first, but we haven't yet seen systems and the supports that help people get jobs change along those same lines. Um, Most states, despite having these employment first policies, when you look at what is their actual capacity for supports, most money and most providers are in congregate day services, things like sheltered workshops or day habilitation. And such a small piece of the service system is really about helping people get real jobs at real pay out in the community. So this lack of access is really a big issue that we need to keep working on. The second thing is I think we haven't quite changed expectations. So I work with so many families and an important part of my work is is with families and young families and with self-advocates. And so many people understand the importance of inclusion in schools. We have in almost every school district I've worked with, inclusion task forces, those mama tigers who are fighting to have their kid in a regular classroom, yet they're so focused on school, they don't think about the adult system. And there's literally a cliff that people fall off from the, you know, the special education and employment system into the adult system. And people get there and they don't know that this kind of fight for inclusion has got to continue. They're kind of told, well, we have a program for your son or daughter. And they don't know that they should be saying the same way they did for their kid's entire career. Nope. You know what? My expectation for my other kids is they go to college or they get a job and they support themselves. And so they don't know to push for, for inclusion and for real employment. So that's a big barrier we're still working on. I, I literally talk to kindergarten parents and say, start planning now for adult life, start thinking about employment, start thinking about independent living. And then I'd say kind of the third piece that is a big barrier is We have a system that is set up so um, against employment in many ways. The only way people with significant disabilities can get supports and supports that they would need for employment is typically through the Medicaid system. And Medicaid is a program that is about giving healthcare to people in poverty. Poverty is a requirement for it. So, you know, people fight so hard to get these home and community-based services and they spend decades waiting on late wait lists. And then they get there, they get the supports and then they realize, oh my God, it's so hard to figure out. If I work, what does that mean? Am I gonna lose access to all of these critical community services? How do I navigate these asset limits and 
these other barriers. And, you know, there are ways, there are special Medicaid buy-in programs. We really need to be thinking about financial planning. And frankly, we really need to rethink our entire healthcare system because home and community-based services should not be tied to having to live a life of poverty. Um, But it's really complicated. And sometimes families and self-advocates themselves get really confused and they think it's just too complicated. I mean, to make it real, my brother um, had a longtime job. It was a great fit for him. He was engaged in competitive integrated employment. And because of COVID-19, he and many, many of his peers were furloughed. Um, He was really able to pivot And um, because he has this long history of work and he has great supports and he self-directs his employment supports, he actually was able to find another job. And we had to spend so much time before he took this job negotiating down his salary. We literally had to do the math to figure out, okay, how many hours a week does he need to work to be able to get employment benefits, but how much could he be paid and not lose his home and community-based services waiver, the supports that help him live independently and give him transportation and give him medical supports that he needs. And it just hit home. We are in 2020. This is a family that is a family of disability advocates. We are all about competitive integrated employment and inclusion and community living. And we had to go in and negotiate down his salary. And I think that just spoke to me about, we have big systemic changes that we need to make if we want people with disabilities to have careers just like everyone else. And just for those that are listening and and following along, but may never have had to uh, go, you know, bat to bat with, uh, with one of the systems, when you say you had to help negotiate Evans pay down so that he wouldn't lose critical uh, home and community-based services, is that that's because he wasn't going to make enough money to to actually pay for those services on his own, right? Like that that's a huge there's a huge discrepancy there, right? And so can you speak a little bit more to kind of what the asset limit issue is and and what that kind of means, uh, both in Evan's case, but in in many other families throughout the country? Sure. I mean, one problem is that these critical home and community-based services that Evan gets and so many people to live independently. So, you know, a direct support professional who helps Evan with independent living skills and budgeting and transportation, you know, those are not things actually most people can private pay for. Private insurance doesn't cover those kinds of things, which is why, you know, people have to rely on Medicaid. So, you know, even people who are you know, lawyers or, you know, professionals making a lot of money, many times they have to either decrease their assets and their income to meet Medicaid or move to a state where there's a generous Medicaid buy-in program. For Evan, you know, we had to negotiate with his employer. So the amount of money that he would get in a paycheck um, wouldn't put him above these limits to be eligible for Medicaid and for Social Security. 
Um, because if he lost those, then it's not just that he would lose employment supports, it's that he would lose the entire package of services. So that's why so many people in the disability community um, kind of have to become policy experts on Medicaid. That's why when we talk about healthcare and, you know, there's been so much in Congress this year about Medicaid, you know, for the disability community, this, this isn't just about like going to the doctor. I mean, this is literally the difference between being segregated and locked away in an institution or being able to participate in the community. So, you know, for, for those of us who are focused on community integration and inclusion, we kind of have no choice but to become Medicaid policy wonky people. Right. Absolutely. Um, thank you for kind of distilling that because I, I do think that there is still uh, just a lack of knowledge or true understanding by so many uh, policymakers and taxpayers out there about how these programs work and that um, and that our our policies are still so archaic in how they look and perceive uh, the abilities of, of individuals to work and participate even if they need um, these supports um, and how the money works and, and that you know, there are great incentives out there uh, that are really discouraging individuals with significant disabilities from pursuing employment even though uh, many of them want to and, and want to be a part of our communities and, and work and live and thrive like everyone else. So I, I think you gave us a, a really real world example. Um, and I know your family is, is one of millions, right? That, that's uh, kind of going through this, this dilemma. Um, you've done a, you've done a, a let a lot, a, a lot is even, uh, I, I would just say a, word I never get to use, a humongous amount of policy advocacy work uh, here in Washington focused on uh, fostering systems change at the state and federal level uh, that would lead to greater opportunities for ind individuals with different abilities to work, to live, and thrive in our communities. Um, can, you, can you briefly describe for folks who may not be as familiar with uh, inside Washington uh, uh, politics, um, what some of these federal advocacy efforts are, and some of the coalition efforts that you're currently leading to help foster more inclusive, equitable communities? Sure. So, you know, inside D.C., people like always think about Congress, and, and certainly so much of our advocacy has been with Congress, and I'll touch on those in a minute. But I think equally as important is the work that we do with federal agencies that are charged with implementing federal statutes and federal regulations. Um, you know, I've had the chance to do a lot of incredible work with Congress. Some of it has been moving the ball forward. And unfortunately, a lot of it over the last several years has been really educating members of Congress about um, why some of the positions that they are taking are so harmful to people with disabilities. You know, healthcare, and I talk about healthcare kind of in a really broad way, and employment is part of it because we talked about the fact that employment supports are primarily provided through Medicaid. And so much of the 
last three and a half years in Washington, D.C., has been about um, making sure and fighting um, to protect programs like Medicaid from huge cuts or huge restructuring and making sure that people with disabilities are not discriminated against in accessing health care, which was a really important piece of the Affordable Care Act. Um, when you hear the word pre-existing condition, um, just think equal sign disability. Every single person with a disability is someone who has a pre-existing condition. And I think back to our healthcare situation growing up as a family and my family not being able to get health insurance because Evan had Down syndrome or being told like we have to pay more or saying we have certain limits. So a lot of our policy advocacy with Congress has had to focus on that. On the other hand, you know, we have had some really important opportunities to move things forward. And employment is one place where I think in this Congress, we've had some really important bills. Um, people may not know that people with disabilities, it is currently legal under federal wage laws to pay people with disabilities less than you pay anyone else. We call it subminimum wages. And that means People like Evan can be working in this, this work site that are called sheltered workshops. There are these segregated settings that are all people with disabilities, and they can be paid as little as pennies an hour. It's completely inconsistent with modern federal disability policy and with modern statutes, but we still have a Fair Labor Standards Act that allows that. In this Congress, we have made such great, great progress in two ways. First is there was a bill that was introduced called the Transformation to Competitive Employment Act. And for the first time, it really brings together um, that people with disabilities have to have a right to be paid the same as everyone else, but making sure that we are expanding the kinds of supports that people need to be able to work in competitive integrated employment. So it's a combination of a phase out with funding to states to expand supports to people with disabilities. It's bipartisan in the House. Um, it, it is uh, not yet bipartisan in the Senate, but we had a lot of interest there. And I am hoping it is something that really is going to pick up some momentum um, in the next Congress. We also, for the first time, made really clear that when we are thinking about raising the wage for all Americans, all means all. And that includes people with disabilities. And a bill that was introduced called Raise the Wage, which is about raising the minimum wage from $7.25 an hour over time up to $15 an hour across the country. You know, everybody deserves a living wage. It was really important that this bill included eliminating subminimum wages for people with disabilities and including people with disabilities in this bill. And it passed the House, and that was the first time that a bill has passed any chamber of Congress to end subminimum wages. So those are some things with Congress that we've been working on. Um, with the federal agencies, there's really important work going on. Um, in the Obama administration, there was a federal regulation that was passed, and um, I was really privileged actually to work with Serena on this uh, in my time uh, inside the government. Um, and it's called the Home and Community-Based Services Settings Rule, the HCBS Settings Rule. And what that rule says is that 
anyone who receives home and community-based services has a right to have all of the benefits of community living. So being able to be part of the community, being able to make choices in your daily life, being able to, um, to access the, the broader community and related to employment, that people with disabilities must have opportunities for competitive integrated employment. We've been working really hard with the federal agency that oversees that rule called the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. And this is a really important place where, you know, federal policy translates at the state level. Um, as part of a coalition that I help lead called the HCBS Advocacy Coalition, we've been making sure state-based advocates know about this rule and know about the opportunities to impact plans that states have to um, make the rule real in their states. We worked really hard to make sure there was this opportunity for stakeholder input um, in the rule. It is required. And so we feel like it's kind of our job to support self-advocates and family members and progressive providers to use this rule to say, what is it that's missing in our system? How are we not getting the services that we need that kind of help us live independent and inclusive lives and, and have opportunities for competitive integrated employment? So that's a big piece that we're doing through the HCBS Advocacy Coalition. Um, there's important employment policy that's also happening at federal agencies, and most people would be surprised to know this, but a lot of the employment policy happens within the U.S. Department of Education because we have a vocational rehabilitation services system that's a federally funded system that exists in all states, and it's a part of the Department of, of Education. We've been working very hard on policies that implement a federal law that was passed in 2014 called the Workforce Innovation and Opportunities Act that prioritizes federal funding for competitive integrated employment and really limits um, the situations where people with disabilities can be um, placed in sub-minimum wage and segregated settings. And we've been pushing very hard in this administration for um, the Department of Education to really strongly implement this rule, be clear that competitive integrated employment is not just about wages, but is also about people with disabilities being able to work alongside um, coworkers without disabilities and getting the same benefits as people without disabilities in a workplace. Um, and making sure that people who are in segregated sub-minimum wage settings are educated and given information about opportunities for competitive integrated employment and supported to make informed decisions about those choices. So um, the collaboration to promote self-determination is another coalition that I'm part of where we really focus on um, transition age youth and that transition from school to the adult system, particularly around employment and have really worked with Congress and with federal agencies in expanding opportunities for competitive integrated employment, particularly for people who have the most significant support needs. Um, and then, as you mentioned, you know, I am a co-chair of CCD's Long-Term Services and Supports Task Force, 
And that's been a place where we have really been pushing on federal policy related to Medicaid and home and community-based services, both with Congress and with federal agencies. And I would say COVID-19 has just, you know, really laid bare the risks that people with disabilities face in institutional settings and in congregate day settings. And so much of our advocacy has been, we need more funding, we need more supports for states, home and community-based um, service systems, because that's the way, not only does it advance people's civil rights and their inclusion, but that's the way we keep people safe through this pandemic. So um, coalition work is key and it's key inside of Washington, DC. And for folks listening who are at state and local levels, I think it's really important to find those coalitions. They exist at the state level and we are stronger together when we kind of come in with a lot of different perspectives, but pushing in the same direction. It's really compelling to elected officials and to policymakers to hear, yes, we all are different and have different needs, but we have the same priorities. Very good advice uh, to, to the field. So you mentioned the Workforce Innovation and Opportunity Act. You, you um, mentioned the publication of the federal HCBS uh, rule out of, uh, out of uh, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. You know, those both occurred in 2014. So we're about six or seven years into implementation of both of those. And uh, they, of course, require massive uh, transformation at a state level of some of the key systems that you talked about, Medicaid, our workforce investment system, vocational rehabilitation, et cetera. Uh, you know, how do you think we're doing on implementing what were the aims of both of those pretty landmark federal policies? And where do you think we've made some significant strides and where do you think we're, we're, we're falling short of, of what the intent and vision and spirit were behind um, those seminal uh, pieces of both legislation and regulation? So I'm going to start being glass half full because um, you kind of have to be that way sometimes. And I do think the last four or five years have really led to significant changes in the way policy is viewed. I think that, um, you know, when the Workforce Innovation and Opportunities Act came out, when the advisory committee report came out, you know, there was certainly a core in the disability community who felt like we are way past time to end sub-minimum wages. We have got to be focused on competitive integrated employment, but I don't think it was like completely the mainstream. And I think that policy conversation has truly changed over time. I think if you look at the legislation that's been introduced, if you look at um, where even kind of policies of major disability provider groups are, I think the question is not if it's going to end, it's how do we do it? And that's a really big advancement. Um, so I think that is, is really positive. And I, and I think I feel really optimistic, whether it's this Congress or 
Congress two years from now, we are getting close. And, and the best evidence of that is the fact that when we issued the advisory committee report, there really weren't any states who had state laws that, that had prohibited subminimum and, wage. And now and we're just at to, five or just to inter- I'm sorry, just to interrupt you for a second. Uh, the advisory committee you're, uh, you're mentioning is the advisory committee to increase competitive integrated employment for individuals with disabilities, which I, I mentioned you were a part of and had been uh, selected to serve on in my introductory remarks. Can you tell us a little bit about the advisory committee and how it came about really quick? Sure. So one important part of, um, of the Workforce Innovation and Opportunity Act was not only that it kind of set these new rules for vocational rehabilitation systems, but it set up a federal advisory committee. And um, the committee was um, in the statute really designated to bring together very diverse views. So everything from disability rights advocates to employers who use subminimum wage certificates to employers who only do competitive integrated employment. It brought together key federal partners that would have to make changes in policy to kind of advance competitive integrated employment. And the charge was to make recommendations to the labor secretary and to Congress, both on what steps would be necessary to increase opportunities for competitive integrated employment for people with significant disabilities. And I think it was really key that it was focused on people with significant disabilities as well as to make recommendations on um, the use of these subminimum wage certificates that are currently legal under the Fair Labor Standards Act. So at the time we issued the report, and the report really, I think, is a blueprint for what Congress needs to do and what a number of federal agencies need to do to really line up policies so they support and incentivize competitive integrated employment instead of, as we talked about earlier, really disincentivizing employment and making that um, the hard thing to do versus the default. And, and, and just real quick, that's, that is the whole mantra, if you will, of employment first, right? Is making sure that publicly financed services and supports are really emphasizing competitive integrated employment as the preferred option or outcome of those services as opposed to segregated day and employment services. That's right. And, you know, we have 32 states or maybe more at this point that have employment first. But when you like actually look under the hood and you say like, well, what's your current capacity of segregated day services versus employment providers. It's in most states about 80% segregated day and 20% employment providers. When you look at, okay, financially, what are we incentivizing? What's kind of if, if the power of the purse string and, and you know, how do we want to encourage providers in a certain direction? When you actually look at it, we still have so many states where to do supported employment, you actually end up losing money. And you do it because it's the right thing, but you don't do it because it's the thing that is incentivized in the system. So, you know, that that is, I think, a big problem of employment first. On the wage piece, at the time the committee report came out, there were no states that had passed um, laws that prohibit subminimum wage. So the way it works is federal law kind of sets the floor 
um, but state laws can go higher. So even though federal laws could allow subminimum wages, you can have states that prohibit them. It's been pretty incredible over the last couple years. And I think I feel optimistic because we now have five or six major states and they're, they're not just the states you'd kind of think of that we're already pretty far along and have pretty progressive developmental disability systems. I mean, I was pretty amazed to see that the state of Texas has now prohibited subminimum wage in their state use program. We have major cities like Chicago and Seattle that are passing this. And if we're kind of looking at what is on um, kind of being proposed in state legislatures, that goes up to almost a third of states. So the more that we have states saying and showing, hey, we can pay people real wages and we can invest in employment supports and our system can do this, we have a lot more fodder and I think a lot more momentum to move bills like that in Congress. So I feel really optimistic about that. You know, when we're talking about general inclusion and home and community-based services, the one silver lining of the incredibly hard fight to protect the Affordable Care Act and to protect Medicaid is we would go into Congress and people did not understand what Medicaid was. They did not understand what home and community-based services were. And and when you explain it, they're like, wait, I support that. Wait, I want people to be able to live in the community. And Medicaid went from kind of being a really negative thing, I think, to a lot of people, to people really valuing and cherishing it. And I, I am optimistic that not only are we in this kind of protect what we have mode, but I think we have a lot of momentum, especially after COVID, to really think big about how we make sure people are getting the supports that they need to live and participate in the community and really thinking of this and emphasizing this as a civil right. So those are all kind of the glass half full, but we're not there yet. We have a ton of work ahead. You know, many of us right now are looking ahead to a new Congress um, with an election coming, the potential of a, a different administration and putting together our priorities. And we have so many things we need to keep doing. Um, you know, the home and community-based services settings rule that we talked about earlier is and should be truly transformational in every state. But it really depends on whether the agency overseeing it kind of makes it a check the box activity or really puts teeth in the rules requirements that people have to have a choice for competitive integrated employment. People have to have a choice not just to be in disability programs, but to get supports in their own homes and in regular workplaces. Um, so that's that's a place where I think we have a lot of work to do. Now, at the state level, um, we have seen incredible progress in some places and in other places, I think people have looked at the political climate and said, maybe these rules are gonna go away. Maybe we don't really have to change. And going back to my personal story of kind of seeing the development of the disability system over 40 years, some of these services were developed 40 years ago when we had no clue of, of what people with disabilities were capable of. We came up with programs that were about supervising people and making sure people had a place to be versus making sure 
people really were able to reach their full potential and do the things that make them happy in life. And so this is the opportunity to modernize kind of outdated programs that are pretty segregated, that are pretty, what I would call custodial, to more individualized and person-centered supports. But some states are kind of um, waiting to see if they really have to do it because change is hard and change takes time. But, but there is the momentum and I think the desire um, from disability stakeholders, from self-advocates, from families, and even from providers to make these changes. So lots of work to do. I hope you know, I'll have a chance to come back on this podcast um, and, and we can kind of in the future lay out, okay, what are our marching orders with a new Congress, with, with maybe some changed political climate uh, dynamics. Um, but I'm trying to feel optimistic that it's sometimes a slow march forward, but we are marching forward nonetheless. Well, we'd, we'd love to have you on on a future uh future Employment First 2.0 uh, conversation. Um, before I lose you, uh, just real quick, you know, for folks that are listening in that might be new to some of these issues or might have a loved one um, uh, who is a, an individual with significant disabilities who wants, you know, who is living and um, uh, in their community or, or maybe even our self-advocates, um, or even folks who really don't have, haven't had a lot of exposure to these issues before, you know, what would you, what would you say to someone that's an employer in a community or, um, or a transition counselor in a school district or, or just um, a young person who's wanting to get involved in their community and in some of these issues to support uh, citizens with with uh, with significant disabilities. You know, what would you? How would you encourage them to plug into some of these issues at a community so I, level? So I have a couple of suggestions for different folks. Um, so first, you know, I I can't be having this conversation in October before an election without letting people know how important it is for people to engage. Um, you know, really become knowledgeable about issues that impact people with disabilities. You know, we've talked about healthcare and Medicaid and home and community-based services and education and employment. And it is really important that people um, educate yourself about the positions of, of federal and local candidates and really think about that. You know, our voice matters. Our voice and vote matter. And so I want to encourage everyone who's kind of in the disability community, it's important to engage and to think about these issues. This is a, an incredibly important way that we can change policy. So that's the first thing I have to say in, in an October. Get out and vote, people. Get out the vote. <laughs> you know, for self-advocates and family members and allies, you know, I want to assure you that you do not have to be a policy wonk to make a difference. You know, you are the best advocate by being able to share your story. You know what is and isn't working in your systems. You know what's missing. And so get involved. There are so many ways to make a difference, whether it's joining, you know, a self-advocacy group or a coalition around healthcare, or, you know, joining the board at your church or your synagogue, you know, 
or joining in the PTA at your school. There are so many opportunities to kind of lift up the important voice of people with disabilities um, and, and ways to get involved in advocacy. So find your community and be active. And then the last thing that I would say kind of on a personal level to all of us, whether you're someone who's, you know, working in the community or as you mentioned, you know, someone who's just interested in these issues, we need to constantly be thinking about how we can make our community more inclusive and accessible to all people with disabilities. Every room that you're in, every table that you're at, I feel like we need to look around and say like, who's not here that needs to be here and why aren't they here? And, you know, I think people often think about, um, oh, well, I've, I've done everything I can, like that we have a ramp on the front of our church. And so why is it that people aren't here? Well, we really need to take a step back and see how do we really reach out and engage people? How do we really make sure people are welcomed in every aspect of our society? I think it's an important lesson, not just on disability, but kind of across the board as we're looking at diversity. Um, but I think all of us really need to, with intentionality, think about how do we build true relationships with people with disabilities? How do we make sure people with disabilities have valued and visible roles in our community? Um, and for people who maybe aren't sure that all means all, the last thing I'll end with is get to know someone with a significant disability. Go out and see it. I think the biggest impact, my brother Evan is an incredible advocate in his own right, but I think he has made such a huge difference with the thousands of people whose lives he has touched by looking at him and seeing, wow, this was someone who was told you could never do anything on your own. And yet he is a living example of with the right supports, people with significant disabilities can live on their own, can hold meaningful jobs, can be a board member of a, you know, of their synagogue or church. They can be a member of the Georgia Council on Developmental Disabilities and lead kind of important policy discussions and have a girlfriend and have an active social life. And so get to know someone, see what it looks like, and I promise you, it will change your worldview. Alison Barkoff, uh, thank you so much for giving us your, your time, your expertise, your passion. It's been a great conversation. Uh, and I hope that, um, that others have not only learned something, but are motivated uh, to get out and uh, really be a part of, of this transformation that's going on at every level of our uh, communities, our governments, and our society. So thank you again for being here. It is great to see you, my friend, my colleague, my, my policy coach. So <laughs> thank you again. You've been listening to a joint episode of the podcast's TASH Amplified, and Yes to Employment, in recognition of National Disability Employment Awareness Month. For more about our podcasts, including show notes, links to articles discussed, a complete transcript, and a schedule of episodes, visit tash.org or yestoemployment.org. You can subscribe through iTunes or your favorite Android podcast app to have the series delivered automatically to your device so you never miss an episode. 
If you enjoyed today's episode, please share it with your friends and on your social networks. Today we talked with Allison Barkoff, the Director of Advocacy at the Center for Public Representation. For more about the Center for Public Representation, visit www.centerforpublicrep.org. For the Home and Community-Based Services Advocacy Coalition, visit hcbsadvocacy.org. The Youth Employment Solutions Center is the National Training and Technical Assistance Center for the Partnerships in Employment, or PIE, state projects. It is a collaboration of TASH and Transcend. You can learn more about the YES Center at yes2employment.org, about TASH at tash.org, and about Transcend at transcend.org. That's T-R-A-N-S-C-E-N dot org. The YES Center is funded by the Administration for Community Living's Administration on Intellectual and Developmental Disabilities for the purpose of transforming state disability support systems to competitive integrated employment. AIDD is dedicated to ensuring that individuals with intellectual and developmental disabilities and their families are able to fully participate in and contribute to all aspects of community life in the United States and its territories. Music for this podcast is an original composition and performance by Sonny Seferati, the co-director and autistic self-advocacy mentor at The Musical Autist. You can learn more about The Musical Autist at www.themusicalautist.org. Keep following Tash and the Yes Center, as well as the Endeem and Endeem75 hashtags on social media. We'll hear from another outstanding employment advocate again next Wednesday. Thank you.